Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my storytelling efforts by either becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. Becoming a patron is really easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of my Picks and Vids page on my Algonquin Park Heritage website. Or you can go to www.podbean.com and do the same thing. If you'd rather buy something for yourself or a fellow Algonquin Park lover with the Algonquin Defining Moments design, just click on the Gears and Gifts link at the top of the Picks and Vids page of my AlgonquinParkHeritage.website as well. When connected, just enter the Algonquin Defining Moments as a search term. You can then search for whatever interests you. There are over 30 items, including coffee cups, water bottles, tote bags, journals, phone cases, and amazingly, even COVID masks. As I think most of you know, in Algonquin Park, there are, along the Highway 60 corridor, 15 self-guided interpretive nature trails that range in distance anywhere from 1 to nearly 11 kilometers in length. In addition, there are some marvelous exhibits and programs at the Algonquin Visitor Center and dozens of books at the Friends of Algonquin bookstores featuring the flora and fauna of Algonquin. In the summer, Ontario Park's staff biologists and naturalists are also available, who not only run the evening programs at the Lake of Two Rivers East Beach Outdoor Theatre, but also take visitors on specific guided hikes at various locations during the summer weeks. These types of nature interpretation activities have been part of the Algonquin Park experience for a long time. In the next few episodes, I'd like to take you down memory lane and share with you the origins of these programs and introduce you to some of the incredible people who not only made it all possible, but have done other really interesting and creative things in the natural heritage area. Note that the sources for much of this content comes from my own research compiled for my book, Treasuring Algonquin, and also from Roderick Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other. In addition, I found George Warecki's book on J.R. Diamond, called J.R. Diamond Scientific Research Nature Reserves in the Interpretive Program in Algonquin Park, 1931-1954, to also be very useful. And in addition are several articles in The Best of the Raven, which is Algonquin Park's newsletter published in three volumes available for the Friends of Algonquin Bookstore. I'd also like to give a huge shout-out to my friend and colleague, Roderick Mackay, who you've heard me mention frequently in other episodes. He helped me a lot with fact-checking and editing, which I really, really appreciate. He was a summer naturalist in the 1970s and has been writing about the park's history ever since, as you know, including compiling the first chronology of dates and events of Algonquin Park's history, which he most recently updated in 2018 and is, of course, available through the Friends of Algonquin Bookstore. As those of you who are avid Algonquin Defining Moment listeners know, when Algonquin Park was established in 1893, one of its key goals was the preservation of wildlife. As I mentioned in several episodes, achieving this goal has had its challenges, what with logging, poaching, fly-in anglers, and sometimes over-enthusiastic recreationists contributing to the challenges. But to take us all back to the very beginning, John McCoon, chief botanist to the Geological Survey of Canada, was the first to conduct an extensive survey of Algonquin Park's flora and fauna. This he did during the summer of 1900, at the request of the then Ontario Premier, George Ross. For those interested, his report is fascinating reading. He gathered an impressive collection of bird, mammal, and fish specimens, including some non-native plant species, introduced as the result of the network of early logging roads and the construction and operation of the railway through the park. Even then, the park had already begun to change. According to Gerald Killen, in his book Protected Places, A History of Ontario's Park System, in the 1920s and 30s, American national park policy was historically far more preservationist-minded than that in Canada. The American national park system inaugurated interpretive programs in the early 1920s 
1933, a new wildlife division was created. As George Warecki wrote in his 2019 book on J.R. Diamond, who was one of Canada's earliest conservationists, from modest beginnings, wildlife scientists played an expanding role and signaled growing support for both ecological research and for the preservation of all animal species within parklands. George, by the way, is an associate professor of Canadian environmental history at Brescia University College, which is an affiliate of the University of Western Ontario. Interestingly enough, in 1929, W.E. Ricker and Fred P. Ide examined various trout habitat and ecology on Wolf and Ragged Lakes, the Apiango River, and the Nipissing River in the park. These, I suspect, were the first to do so in this part of Ontario at least in any formal sort of way. But the person who really got things going in Algonquin Park in this area was Frank McDougall, who I think I've told you before was the park superintendent from 1931 to 1941, and then was the deputy minister of the Department of Lands and Forests, the first forester to ever hold that position. According to a 1995 article in The Raven, what set Frank McDougall apart was his vision. He had an extraordinary ability to see problems coming, devise simple solutions for them, and then to implement economically and effectively those solutions. As a professional forester, although initially his philosophy was more of a utilitarian bent, over time he started to see the light, as it were. Still guided by previous conservation principles of, quote, multiple use, unquote, there were some subtle shifts in his thinking that he documented in a plan that he wrote in 1932. Lumbering was still okay, but would be regulated far more strictly. Trees along the highway and the shorelines and portages of major canoe routes would be protected from cutting, and over time sawmills would be eliminated. McDougall put a lot more emphasis on recreational, scenic, and scientific activities. In order to become a, quote, natural playground for the people, unquote, and increase tourism, he felt that the park needed more facilities and better access than the Canadian National Railway line in the north could provide. Closure to through traffic of the former Ottawa Arnprior and Parry Sound Railway led to the construction of Highway 60 in the south. McDougall was also supportive of Annie and Ed Colson leasing land and building the Portage store on Canoe Lakes, Portage Bay. He supported leaseholding, but was, as Warecki wrote, resolved to keep roads, cottages, and other recreational facilities away from the park's wilderness interior. McDougall also eventually came to accept many of the preservationist ideals promoted by the Federation of Ontario Naturalists, which had been established in 1931 at the urging of J.R. Diamond and A.F. Coventry, both were from the Department of Zoology at the University of Toronto. According to historian George Altmeyer, in an article he wrote in 1976 on the history of nature in Canada from 1893 to 1914, Canadians in those days thought about nature in one of three ways. For some, nature was a benevolent mother, capable of soothing city-worn nerves and restoring health. For another group, Nature was a limited storehouse whose treasures must in the future be treated with greater respect. For a third group, nature was a temple where one could again find and communicate with one's higher power. Though small, this group of middle to upper class vacationers, sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, canoe trippers, summer camp and resort operators, tourist conscious transportation interests, poets, authors, and naturalists were vocal. After World War I, though still embraced, there was one crucial refinement to these sentiments. As Warecki wrote, naturalists in the 1930s had an understanding of science, different from that of their predecessors. Armed with new ideas from the science of ecology, these modern crusaders were motivated by strong beliefs about humans' relationship with the natural world. Natural life in Ontario was, according to Coventry, quote, the heritage of every citizen, and each person had a right to enjoy it in his or her own way, providing that doing so didn't curtail the enjoyment of others, unquote. 
In addition, each species had a right to exist, and those who appreciated wildlife for its own sake, or as a field of scientific study, had claims that needed to be considered equally to those claims from sportsmen and commerce. In Algonquin Park, this was translated by MacDougall into thinking about setting aside nature reserves and the importance of educating the public based on the results of scientific inquiry. Of course, there was no money for this sort of thing in the park's operating budgets in those days, but MacDougall was really good at finding other means to move his agenda forward. For example, urged on by J.R. Diamond, whom I mentioned previously was not only a professor of zoology at the University of Toronto, but had become an Algonquin Park leaseholder on Smoke Lake in 1936, McDougall decided that the best place to start was with a focus on fisheries research. In 1935, he asked Diamond to study Cache Lake, the lake on which the park headquarters was located. That study and fisheries research lasting to the present will be the subject of a future podcast. In 1938, Duncan McGlulich, who later became the first biologist and naturalist on the park staff, set out the park's first nature trail for the public on the Canis Bay Portage. Signs with the simple name of the tree written on baggage tags were posted on selected trees. McLulich was also interested in developing similar trails at the various children's camps, such as on the Tanamacoon Trail. As Rory Mackay noted in his book Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, McLulich would later say, We were trying to plan what we would suggest in the way of nature services to be operated at various children's camps in the park. This included a nature trail to each children's camp, conducted tours, hikes, and a small reference library in a camp the training of camp counselors or leaders so they could take people on trips, lists of birds or mammals and reptiles and plants that one might see and maybe even competitions that could be devised around various nature subjects. Meanwhile, on Smoke Lake, it didn't take long before Diamond's reputation as a leading wildlife expert became known around the lake. In 1942, Jessie Northway, wife of Garfield Northway, owner of the then-popular retailer Northway & Sons, asked Diamond if he'd be willing to conduct educational hikes for a group of boy scouts from Toronto who were up visiting them at their Smoke Lake cottage, which was the former Camp Nominegan. This he agreed to, and with fellow neighboring leaseholder James Savage, an institution was born. According to another resident, Nancy Martin, James Savage's daughter, her father and Diamond would, quote, pick different spots, and two to three days before each event, they would blaze a trail and mark 20 or so specimens for identification. They would tie a string to the specimen and a number. The cottagers and the kids would arrive for the nature hike, and like a treasure hunt were each given a small pencil and paper with which to write down what they thought each specimen was. Was it a plant? Was it a tree? Everyone brought a picnic lunch, and then we would have the plants identified and a prize awarded, usually a chocolate bar, for the best score for the kids. It was a wonderful social event for all of the children and adults on the lake who participated. The success of these hikes in 1942 led to the formation of the Smoke Lake Naturalist Club, a map of which you can find describing the club on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com. Diamond led these weekly outings, followed by a ragtag group dressed in bushwhacking clothes and armed with picnic lunches for the midday rest. For those who were really interested, he'd circulate mimeographed lists of wildlife, birds, animals, trees, shrubs, and plants. In the summer of 1944, Diamond was asked by McDougall to go public and lead nature walks for Algonquin visitors and make visits to children's camps. Diamond was really interested in this because, as he said at the time, I had this strong feeling that there were many people coming into the park at that time who were completely lost. My sense was that it was a strange world for them, that they had no idea what was around them, and that for many it was an entirely unrewarding experience, because I would hear the people say, Is there nothing but lakes and trees here? There should be some effort to get them out of their cars 
get them into the woods and introduce them to some of the wildlife activity that's really close at hand. During the second summer, Diamond conducted 20 hikes attended by over 500 people and visited six children's camps. In his report on that summer, he noted that there was, quote, a real interest on the park of many visitors in becoming acquainted with the natural history of the park, unquote. Diamond was a unique hike leader because he liked to lead hikes that resulted in meaningful discourse and questions. He loved to share his ideas about the new science of ecology and the complexities of the environment. His objective was to, quote, stimulate interest and not give all the answers but create mystery and provoke thought, unquote. When Diamond led hugs, he'd start at 9.30 or 10 a.m. in the morning and always insisted that lunch be included. To him, lunch was an important part of the whole experience because he got to know people a little better. He had found over the years that people were more relaxed and open for conversation while sitting down having a sandwich. It gave him time to talk to people and gave the hikers time to ask questions. As Audrey Saunders wrote in 1944 after attending one of Diamond's walks, Professor Diamond was our dauntless leader. It was the butterfly net that gave him his air of great distinction. All day long he used it as a pointer to show us details of special interest. Never once did Professor Diamond use it to catch a butterfly, and only once did he catch anything at all, a toad that had wandered across our path. He had us all look at it, and we learned that it was not slimy, did not produce warts, and devoured many insects that are very harmful to plant life. As quoted in Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, John Speakman, one of Diamond's students who helped him one summer, remembered Diamond as having a natural gift for telling stories. He was marvelous, just looking at an old rotten pine stump, would start him off on the turnover of trees and the decay and the rotting and so on, the development of humus. He was very good on ferns and amphibians, and he'd extol the virtues of the bogs. He was a very unassuming man, had a very good, very dry sense of droll humor. He used to get a plaid shirt and a dirty pair of pants, and he was just in his element. On my website, there are a couple of wonderful pictures of Diamond in this same plaid shirt from some of these hikes. Based on this success, McDougall then asked Diamond if he would consider developing a more formal nature interpretive program. Diamond agreed and in the summer of 1946 set up a three-pronged program that included conducted nature hikes, public lectures, and a wildlife exhibit. The exhibit tent was set up at Cache Lake near the park headquarters. It included a few mounted specimens of birds and mammals that had been donated from the Royal Ontario Museum. It was kept open for 54 days during that summer season, with 3,436 people signing the guest book, and another thousand or so estimated to have visited without signing in. As noted in Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Alan Helmsley, who helped Diamond set up the program, recalled that, quote, we set up a 14 by 14 tent marquee, which the Royal Ontario Museum had given us. We cleaned these mounts of birds and mammals and put labels on them and fixed it up as a little museum. It was great and I thoroughly enjoyed it. We had things like mounted birds and mammals, specimens, different kinds of skulls, pressed plants, vases of wildflowers, and all that sort of thing. The tent ran for three summers. Later in 1947, living amphibians and reptiles, plants, and geological models were added. As Helmsley went on to share in a 1977 interview with Ron Pittaway, the first conducted nature hikes were pretty basic. Using a mile-long existing portage and railway tracks, the one day-long hike started at the Highland Inn on Cache Lake. It ran eastward along the old railway bed and over one or two of the abandoned railway trestles and then immediately turned south. It then climbed to the top of Skymount Ridge and provided a fabulous lookout over the whole of Cache Lake. 
hand-printed labels containing the names and brief characteristics of trees, ferns, and common wildflowers were attached to plants along the trail. Advertising for conducted hikes was included in a bulletin put up at the Lake of Two Rivers campground and at the various lodges in the park. Gradually, the program expanded, and as Doug Roseboro, another early park naturalist, said, in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, one of the trails that I found when I was working at the fish lab was the lookout trail. We found that we were 4.8 kilometers going in and 1.2 kilometers coming out, and it turned out to be a pretty popular trail because of the view. Roseboro went on to say that we really had good results from our nature trails and our nature talks. Everyone would come out to them. They seemed to gobble up all of the information that we could provide. When we made a nature trail, we often had to cut it ourselves. Then we printed all our signs by hand and we dipped them in wax. We then put them in tin holders that we'd made in Huntsville and nailed them onto sticks and put them in the ground. By 1947, nearly 67,000 park visitors had visited the Tent Museum, which suggested that a more permanent building was needed. Diamond also felt that some sort of naturalist certificate program needed to be initiated. He thought it should have various grade levels of naturalists, namely a beginner, junior, intermediate, and senior naturalist categories. Within each grade, there would be a target number of trees, birds, and other forms of plant and animal life that the budding naturalist needed to be able to recognize and be familiar with. He also felt strongly that participants also needed to grasp what he called certain principles of behavior in the forest and an appreciation of the better known principles of ecology. These included things like not killing any plants or animals without good cause, not destroying the beauty of trails and roads by defacing trees or uprooting plants or throwing paper and other litter about. In the summer of 1953, seasonal park naturalists started awarding wildlife certificates, and by the time I went to Camp Wapameo on Canoe Lake in 1967, a naturalist program with several grades of badges was a standard camp activity, expected to be mastered by all. In 1948, park naturalists started holding evening lectures during the summer at Cache Lake. As Alan Helmsley said, and was noted in a reflective article by Ron Tozer on the history of the interpretive program on its 50th anniversary, quote, There was no set agenda, and the naturalists would talk about whatever interested them. Lodge owners in the area welcomed the program and would turn over their dining rooms every other week, and all the guests would come to the nature talk, unquote. In the summers of 1948-1950, staff experimented with campfire talks at the Lake of Two Rivers campground, which provided an evening of both education and entertainment. In those first few summers, 70 to 80 people would gather at each event, and naturalists would pass around specimens and generate discussions on various topics. Now's about time, I think, for another musical interlude, and I'm pleased to share with you today a song called Black Spruce, from Ian Tamblin's Superior Spirit and Light album, that which he did in 2007. Black spruce, heart of the northern river Through the glass saw ripple clouds and trees I know Black spruce, black spruce, onward ever deeper Calm this restless heart, soothe the restless soul I am the raven, high o'er the river I am the black wings carrying me home I am the night sky Deeper and deeper So many stars Always alone To the black spruce Black spruce Heart of the northern river Through the glass or ripple Clouds and trees I know Black spruce Black spruce Onward ever deeper Calm this restless heart Soothe the restless soul 
I am the windside night through the jackpine. I am the flurry of birds on the way. I am the whisper at the heart of your longing. I am but a heartbeat pounding. Black spruce, black spruce, heart of the northern river. Through the glass or ripple clouds and trees I know. Black spruce, black spruce, onward ever deeper. Calm this restless heart, soothe the restless soul. I am the storm clouds building and building. I am the fury, the thunder, the light. I am raindrops, birds' songs in the morning. I am white water heard in the night. To the black spruce, black spruce, heart of the northern river. Through the glass are ripple clouds and trees and black spruce. Black spruce, onward ever deeper. Calm this restless heart, soothe the restless soul. I am these things, all of your longing, all of your questions. You ask me no more, for I'm the whisper at the heart of this calling. Comfort your heart, slip through this door. The black spruce, black spruce, heart of the northern river. Through the glass or ripple, clouds and trees I know. Black spruce, black spruce, onward ever deeper. Calm this restless heart, soothe the restless soul. In 1951, more emphasis was placed on presenting slideshows and talks, conducting hikes, and displaying specimens for children at the various children's camps. Alan Helmsley, R.D. Usher, and J.D. Rossborough introduced nature films to the repertoire that were screened at the Cash Lake Rec Hall. Conducted hikes, drawing a total attendance of over 400 hikers, were held three times a week. From July to October of that year, over 5,390 people walked what were by then four nature trails by themselves. Three at Found Lake, Canis Bay, and Smoke Lake were improved with weatherproof labels. Because of the success of the Tent Museum, in 1950 plans for a new museum began and construction was completed by May of 1953. That first summer, over 52,000 people visited the new Algonquin Park Museum at Found Lake in the building that now houses an art gallery. As Alan Helmsley shared in Algonquin Park a place like no other, at the first lecture there was standing room only. The lecture hall seated a little less than a 100 people, and yet people were standing outside the museum trying to see in the door. It was just hopeless. In addition to displays, its location made it easy for campers, cottagers, and visitors to come and ask questions of park staff, especially on rainy days. The four nature trails attracted over 12,000 hikers during the 1953 season. What made the Algonquin Park interpretive program so unique was that in many ways the quality of the talks on ecology and environment were way ahead of their time. As Helmsley shared in Roderick Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, on a hike, quote, we'd sit down to have a rest, and we'd talk about what is natural. After a few minutes, I'd ask, well, where we're sitting now, would you call this natural? And of course they'd say, yes, this is really wild. I'd then start to point out things such as evidence of forest fires and ask, well, if this was a natural forest fire, then is it natural? But is it any different than a fire that was started by someone by accident? The results are the same. Well, we then get to talking about the place of fire, and I'd point out that fire was in every plant succession in North America. A lot of eyes were opened, I think, when we talked in this vein. 
I think the main job was to stimulate interest and not give all the answers, but create mystery and provoke thought, more than to educate and teach. Note that this quote was made in 1976 about events in the 1950s, nearly 70 years ago. I suspect that the same discussion held on a hike today would elicit the same eye-opening response. In 1956, demand to participate in the evening lectures was so strong that the venue was moved to Lake of Two Rivers, where a rough outdoor amphitheater was built, with rough hemlock logs for seating and a temporary frame for the portable screen that showed lantern slides and motion pictures. Grant Taylor arrived as a seasonal naturalist in 1956 and took over the park interpretive program from Alan Helmsley in 1957 and became the park's first permanent staff member. As Taylor remembered in 1976 and was quoted in Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, the slide talks pertain to the park directly, of course. 35-millimeter slide programs were fairly unique. It was something that the majority of people had not seen and had not participated in, so it had a strong impact, especially shots of wildlife, any kind of wildlife at all. We didn't have a projection booth, so we just put a picnic table in between the rows of seats, and away we went. The mosquitoes were unmerciful. Now that's a comment to which I'm sure we can all relate. In 1957, seasonal naturalists started offering programs at Rock Lake Campground as well, with electric power provided by a power generator. As Ron Tozer, who first began his park interpretive career in 1961, recalled, In those early days, the speaker's slides were hand-loaded one at a time by a projectionist, thus allowing the speaker to be up in front of the audience. The speaker held a switch in his hand, that operated a small light bulb in the projection booth. When the light bulb went on, the projectionist slid a carrier holding a new slide in place for projection and replaced the previous slide with the next one in sequence. The mid-50s also brought the first venture into topics that weren't straight natural history, and the beginnings of an interest in studying Algonquin's cultural history began. It all started when an angler discovered on Grand Lake an old artifact. This triggered an interest in setting up a special exhibit in the museum theater wing that was called 4,000 Years of Camping in Algonquin Park. As Alan Helmsley recalled in Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, and I paraphrase, we had these Laurentian artifacts that were pre-ceramic, pre-pottery. We worked our way through pottery and other development eras from the Iroquois people to modern times, ending with a display of a beer can and a few pieces of camping debris. It worked out well, and lots of people started to get interested in archaeology. This later led to the examination of the remains of a Cambu shanty on Apiango Lake, which in turn led to the opening in the summer of 1960 of the Pioneer Logging Exhibit. Not far from where the Algonquin Logging Museum is today near the East Gate, this was the first logging exhibit in Ontario of this type. It was an immediate success and today receives thousands of visitors a year. As head biologist and chief naturalist in the 1960s, Grant Taylor was instrumental in putting together much of the information on which today's natural heritage programs are based. Not only did he develop checklists of flora and fauna, he also drove the establishment of more nature trails. He and Russ Rudder also developed the Algonquin Park newsletter, The Raven. Printed weekly in the summer, it started in 1960, and its objectives were to primarily provide insight into the natural history of Algonquin Park based on known scientific inquiry and study results. Interestingly enough, it was an article in The Raven from 1978 on the impacts of acid rain that caught the attention of newspapers and television across Canada a subject we'll talk about in another podcast. With the help of Douglas Pimlot, who had conducted research on wolves in the park from 1958 to 1962, Taylor, with Russ Rudder, conceived the idea for the public wolf howl. As noted in Episodes 5 and 6 on Poaching in the Park, for most of the park's early existence, 
wolves were considered vermin and a nuisance. In 1939, J.R. Diamond tried to convince MacDougall that their obsessive pursuit of wolves was unnecessary by sending him a report by park ranger Aubrey Dunn, who had spent part of the winter tracking wolves in the park. The report included observations about wolf habits, such as the difference between day and night travel routes, hunting methods, the size of packs, and the inability of wolves to always secure deer. Though this began a change in thinking that perhaps wolves were a species to be protected, not destroyed, it wasn't until much later in 1959 that the Ontario government gave wolves official protection. I'll devote a special episode to wolves in the near future. The first public wolf howl happened in August 1963. As Pimlot recalled in 1977 and was quoted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, we thought there might be 30 or 40 or maybe 50 people gathered at Lake of Two Rivers. I think there were 186 cars in the cavalcade and to put it mildly, the Ontario Provincial Police were quite disturbed. The officer met us at about mile 30, and we had a massive traffic tie-up. He wasn't much impressed with it at all. We didn't really hear a wolf pack that night, only a single wolf howling near the east gate, and I think possibly a single at Sunday Creek. But the thing was, people were very interested. This program celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2013 with over 2,000 people in 500 cars listening in silence along Highway 60. It was still a thrilling experience. Unfortunately, increased highway traffic and safety requirements have made it virtually impossible to conduct wolf howls along Highway 60 any longer. Though they do continue from time to time, it is mostly on secondary roads to the main highway corridor. The public wolf howl, though, remains a signature Canadian experience and an important part of the Algonquin Park interpretive program. Funnily enough, and eventually not so funny at all, as Park's historian Gerald Killen wrote in his book Protected Places, A History of Ontario's Park System, Ironically, the success of the interpretive programs in Algonquin bred new problems. The conducted hikes attracted more people, as many as 83 per hike, than the guides could reasonably handle. The four labeled trails were heavily used, and in some cases overused. The Lookout Trail, for example, had to be closed in 1959 due to overuse. In 1966, Bill Calvert replaced Grant Taylor as head naturalist. The Algonquin Park Museum at Found Lake was redesigned to reflect a more modern look. The wooden specimen cases were replaced with specimens under plexiglass domes affixed to the walls with accompanying labels. Algonquin Park lies within a transition zone between southern deciduous and northern boreal forests, so a theme of south meets north was adopted with the inclusion of organisms from both types of forest. Based on a series of investigative trips to various parks in the United States with interpretive programs, Calvert realized that better written material was needed. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, his view was that historians and biologists were needed to, quote, undertake the professional work necessary to assure that interpretation in Algonquin had the same high standards as that of any other park, so that visitors could understand and appreciate the values of the park. In 1970, Dan Strickland became chief park naturalist, and Ron Tozer, who had started as a seasonal naturalist in 1961, became the park naturalist in 1972. In the 1970s, the popularity of the interpretive program continued, sometimes with conducted hike numbers bordering on the unmanageable. Evening programs were held every night of the week in summer at the new Pog Lake Outdoor Theater at the east end of Lake of Two Rivers. The audience often numbered 800 or more. Specific high-interest topics, such as Wolves or Tom Thompson, would attract as many as a 1,000 visitors. 
The park naturalist staff needed to not just be knowledgeable and dedicated, they also had to be, as Gerald Killen noted, quote, capable of infecting their listeners with enthusiasm for the natural wonders and cultural features to be found. They had to inform, guide, educate, and entertain all that they had contact with. To ensure these goals, park naturalist staff were constantly evaluated on their knowledge and ability to connect with the public. Hardly an evening program at Pog Lake was presented without the presence of either Ron Tozer or Dan Strickland in the audience during a period of over two decades. One idea implemented by Chief Park Naturalist Dan Strickland was that of themed trail guides. Efforts began in 1972 with the Booth Rock Trail Guide, where the main theme was humans and the park environment. Later, a guide for the Hardwood Lookout Trail explained the key elements of a hardwood forest, and the Lookout Trail was repurposed and rerouted to explain geology. The Hemlock Bluff Guide focused on park research, and new trails were added not just on the Highway 60 corridor, but also at Acre and Brent. An excellent writer, Strickland also was the original writer of the large format soft cover publications covering Algonquin-specific topics such as birds, flowers, mammals, mushrooms. Originally illustrated by Howard Coneybear, these booklets provided species information and a checklist so that readers could check off the list those that they saw during their visit. Many new programs were added throughout the 1970s, such as canoe outings and evening walks and history walks. Conducted hikes also became focused on a specific topic, such as forest ecology, insects, trees, wildflowers, and birds, rather than the more general topics of the past. In 1983, the Friends of Algonquin Park was formed as a nonprofit that was to offer memberships in order to raise funds for more publications, support summer naturalists, and assist in strengthening the interpretive program. The Friends of Algonquin Park were major players in raising the funds to replace the original Pioneer Logging Exhibit, with today's Algonquin Logging Museum and the building of the existing Algonquin Visitor Center, which opened in 1993 in time to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the park's founding. In 2000, Rick Stronks succeeded Dan Strickland as the chief park naturalist, and soon after, the name of the interpretive programs across Ontario was changed to the Natural Heritage Education Program. Strongs had successfully extended relationships with those who ran interpretive programs at the Ontario Parks and became involved with the National Association of Interpretation. NIA was an American-based professional association established in 1988 for those involved in the interpretation of natural and cultural heritage resources. Algonquin Park's involvement not only shared Algonquin's approach to interpretation with others, but also broadened the park's level of interpretation with new ideas. Strong's was also instrumental in adding autumn Japanese and German-speaking staff to support the evolving fall-color tourist visitorship. He also enabled the expansion of programs that focused on nature opportunities for children at the visitor center, including school groups in the spring. As Strong said in 2016, Getting kids active and participating was really sort of key. We really pushed hard to try to get all the kids involved with the demonstration in some way, and the response has been very good. Although the traditional guided hikes became geared to families and children, some hike themes were more targeted to a younger audience. As Strongs went on to say in 2016, all the evidence suggests that kids have this desire to be out in nature. We know it's good for them. We just have to spark that interest and give them opportunities. This means making an insect hike about collecting the insects. Today, Algonquin's discovery program of natural and cultural history interpretation is part of the longest-running program of its kind in Canada. The funny thing, though, is that in spite of this success, my sense is that sometimes officials at least those officials who worry about budgets, often view naturalist programs as a non-essential service, and perhaps even a luxury, 
even though it is these programs that are often what attracts thousands of yearly visitors to Ontario's parks. Nevertheless, in spite of these ongoing budget challenges today, these efforts that were ideated in the 1930s and operationalized in the late 1940s have spawned what is now an integral part of the Algonquin Park experience. As mentioned, new exhibits and dioramas in the new Algonquin Visitor Center replaced the original museum's exhibits in 1993, and the site is as popular as ever, open on weekends all year round. Diamond's idea of the need for a few park-related books about the natural history in Algonquin Park is now a huge collection about all aspects of the park's ecosystem, including trees, plants, birds and insects, butterflies, mammals, mushrooms, reptiles, and wildflowers, as well as over a dozen technical bulletins about the various aspects of Algonquin Park's ecology. All of these publications can be bought online or in person at the Friends of Algonquin Park's bookstores. Diamond's ideas about how to conduct hikes have persisted. Strickland's trail guides that introduce hikers to a different theme about Algonquin's human or natural history continue to be well used. Each guide contains a map of the walking trail and the text is keyed to numbered posts along the trail. One of my hopes is to someday get permission to record them all so that those interested in listening rather than reading can get access to the same information through their phone or their iPad. Now if any of you think this is a good idea, please reach out to the Friends of Algonquin Park and let them know. You can do so either via their Facebook page or the Friends of Algonquin Park website. Until restrictions brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic required modifications, the interpretive programming continues to be built upon the ideas set out by J.R. Diamond. As George Warecki explained in his book, J.R. Diamond, Scientific Research, Nature Reserves, and the Interpretive Program in Algonquin Provincial Park, 1931-1954, and I quote, For over five decades, Diamond was a leader in promoting conservative issues. Being practical, he also understood the importance of ensuring that the public understood the ongoing dynamics of the ecosystems that sustain the natural world. His greatest labor of love was the natural history movement in Ontario. He was one of the first to adopt and promote ecology, basic principles that normal folks could understand. Concepts such as the idea that the study of animals in their natural habitats was essential to the advancement of biological science. Language such as the food chain that Diamond leveraged from Charles Elton's 1927 animal ecology work are now part of the lexicon of the general public as is nature deficit disorder, which is this idea that a wide range of behavioral problems, especially in children, can be related to them not spending enough time outdoors connecting with nature. Now, of course, such a concept never existed back then, but I'm sure that Diamond would understand the sentiments involved. Diamond was later awarded the Order of the British Empire for his role in making Canadians aware of the need to conserve their natural resources, not just the wildlife alone, but the whole ecosystem of life, soil, and water. As noted in George Warecki's book, Helmsley, Taylor, Calvert, Strickland, Tozer, and Strongs were a source of inspiration to hundreds of young seasonal naturalists over the years. The program envisioned by Diamond shaped the field of interpretation across Canada. Alan Helmsley, who I've mentioned several times, went on to the park's branch head office in 1955 and by 1965 had established interpretation as an essential feature of Ontario's provincial park system. As Gerald Killen wrote, Through interpretive services, the means was found to satisfy both the recreationalists' desire to learn about the parks in which they chose to spend their leisure time and the need to inform visitors about the proper use and protection of the parks. By the time Helmsley left the Ontario Civil Service to become Chief Park Naturalist and Head of Interpretation for Parks Canada in 1965, he had established interpretation as an essential feature of the Ontario Provincial Park System. He widened the focus on interpretation by including the human history of the parks, which is why Algonquin's Visitor Center exhibits include sections on Algonquin's indigenous past 
and various aspects of its complete history. The Algonquin Logging Museum is a direct descendant of the inspiration of Al Helmsley. It's impossible to adequately capture and not underestimate the role and contribution that he made to the world of park interpretation in Canada. I do hope you've enjoyed this trip down memory lane to introduce you to the origins of Algonquin's natural history programs. As Killam wrote, interpretation is something different from general education about nature. Its purpose is to provide visitors with an understanding and appreciation of the unique environment and the inspirational values of each park, its geological, glacial, topography, soils, flora, fauna, and human history. Its role is invaluable. As always, to see some pictures of some of the early exhibits and other program-related artifacts, check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. As mentioned previously, if you're interested in supporting my Algonquin Defining Moments storytelling efforts, please consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. And if you're interested in reading more about the Algonquin Park history, please check out the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores, where you'll find a wide range of both natural history and human history books. Until next time, 